First Timothy 3. I won't be in 1 Timothy 3 right away, uh, but that is where we'll park this morning. We often see in Christian circles around this time of year the statement, uh, uh, Jesus is the reason for the season. And, and you'll see it perhaps on billboards and you'll see it on buildings and you'll see it on bumper stickers and you'll see it on houses and such. And indeed, in the Western world, Christmas is intended to be a holiday that was designed to honor the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, we understand, as, as I mentioned even in my prayer this morning, that things have changed today. Uh, we, we are, and, and, and in a manner of speaking, always have been. Um, the, the country, the United States, the Western culture, Western world, has, in a manner of speaking, still always been a, a secular culture. There, there has really only ever been one culture that was truly not secular, and that was the theocracy found uh, in Israel's day. And yet we understand that the Western world does have a, a deep moorings in biblical principle and biblical concept. Today, those moorings are dissolved. Um, they, they are completely dissolved. And secular culture, a secular culture that has rejected the truths of God's word, um, has rejected as well the truths of Jesus Christ. And this should not surprise us. And as I mentioned also in my prayer, in, in a manner of speaking, this really shouldn't trouble us. It, it, it should more so inspire us to be busy about the work that God has called us to do, to be busy about the work of reflecting Jesus Christ to a lost and a dying world. And as we consider this idea that Jesus, it truly is the reason why we, we observe Christmas. Uh, I don't even really see what we do here this morning or, or um, the, the nice decorations that we have. These sorts of things that we do, I, I don't even really see it as an extension of what's happening outside of these doors. As we think of the culture at large, I would believe that there's a, a, an entirely separate purpose that we have here. We do have the privilege not just to understand the significance of Jesus' birth as an event, but the significance of Jesus' birth as it goes beyond just the event and into why he came. If we take the Bible at its word, Jesus is not just the reason for Christmas. He's not just the reason for the season surrounding Christmas. He's not just the reason for Christmas and Resurrection Sunday. Jesus is the reason for everything. In fact, we read in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, so one day everything will fall at the feet of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the reason for everything. Jesus is everything. 
one day, whether a person places their full faith and trust in Jesus Christ or not, they will fall down at the feet of Jesus Christ and proclaim Him Lord. It will either have been uh, those that have accepted Jesus and thus the, the proclamation of, of Him as Lord would be an extension of what they proclaimed on this earth, or it will be at the moment that the unbeliever stands before Jesus in judgment and they will finally realize that Jesus Christ is Lord. And not just the things uh, the, the things on earth, but also the scriptures tell us the things in heaven. That those angels, those principalities, whether they be, of course, the angels that already pro proclaim Jesus' lordship around the throne, or whether it is those who fell with Satan and are at this time um, deceiving and, and seeking to thwart and to accuse and to confuse and to destroy. At, there, there will come a time where all will proclaim Jesus to be Lord. Ephesians 1 tells us that Jesus is and eventually will be throughout the course of history all in all. Now the promise of Jesus' birth began all the way back following the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. And there, God made a promise to the serpent, who we understand from the book of Revelation being called the old serpent there, to be Satan. And he said this, in Genesis 3.15, he said, I will put enmity between thee, that's the serpent, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. At this moment in the Garden of Eden, God promised to send a man, a seed of the woman, to destroy the head of the serpent, though at a cost to himself in that his heel would be bruised. All throughout the law, all throughout the histories, all throughout the poets, all throughout the prophets, everything that we have in the Old Testament... We see testimony of one who would come. We read about that testimony this morning in our Sunday school hour as we looked at several of the prophecies concerning the birth of Jesus Christ. We'll look at some this morning as well. We read of the unique nature of this promised one in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 where the Bible says this, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In these verses we find this one to be born with the, the name being called Emmanuel, which uh, we, we literally know from Matthew as well as from study means God with us in the Hebrew. This one would be God in flesh. His birth and his character are further explained a few chapters over in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 where the Bible tells us this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Here we see a, a promise of the nature of the one who would come. He would be born of a virgin. He would be God in flesh. Then we see the, the character that he would be the King. He would be the Mighty, uh, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God. A vivid description of his death is given to us in Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 and 5. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. We see a promise of a special birth. A promise of a kingly destiny but also a promise of a terrible death. The very final prophet in the Old Testament named Malachi with nearly his final words promised the same promise that we've been singing about for several days. The son of righteousness that would arise with healing in his wings. The day spring from on high that would come. He promised a divine sunrise a day spring from on high who would appear with healing in his wings to lead those who love God into the way of peace. A way of peace which man had not known. The Prince of Peace, as he was declared in Isaiah 9-6, leading us into the way of peace. Well, the account of Jesus Christ is storied. It's well known. We read about it a little bit this morning. In Matthew 1, we find these words, same words which we read. The birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband being a just man and not willing to make a public, her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Just as the prophets had foretold, a virgin brought forth a son, a man-child. And while his name would be Jesus, uh, a Greek transliteration of the Hebrew name Joshua, a name which literally means Jehovah saves, the angel tells Mary's betrothed husband Joseph that this child fulfilled the prophecy that was given in Isaiah 7.14, which we just read, that a virgin would bring forth a son and that this son would be God in flesh. Now, as one continues through the account of Jesus' birth and his childhood, we find divine testimony of the significance of this child. In Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, we see Jesus was born in Bethlehem and shepherds just outside of the city were witness to the divine revelation given by an angel. And Luke 2, 8 through 11 tells us there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them and the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy which should be to all people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Good tidings, they said, of great joy that the Savior of the world, Christ the Lord, had been born that night. The shepherds go and see this child who they found because it was, he was lying in a manger wrapped in swaddling clothes. They rejoice over the birth of the Savior. Forty-one days later, after Mary's ceremonial uncleanness according to the law was fulfilled, the Bible tells us that she and Joseph took Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem to redeem him according to the law. And there they met with a man named Simeon who... Seeing the child said unto them in Luke chapter 2 verses 29 through 32, Lord, now lettest thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. The man Simeon understood this young child to be the fulfillment of all the promises of God, dating all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He calls this child God's salvation. He says that he is the one, according to prophecy, who would be a light to lighten the Gentiles, who would be the glory of Israel. The child and his parents then venture home. And they, they go to Nazareth, the scriptures tell us. It would be somewhere between one and two years later that a band of wise men, tradition tells us three, history doesn't bear record as to actually how many there were, but a group of wise men come from the east and they go to a King Herod and they say, where is this king? This child that was born king of the Jews. And Herod gathers together the wise, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the wise men in Israel, and he says, what is the prophecy of this child who would be born king? And they tell him he would be born in Bethlehem. And he says, around what time did you see this star, he asks the wise men. And, and based upon what he tells them, it would seem as though Jesus was somewhere around one to two years old at the time. So the scribes and Pharisees say he'd be born in Bethlehem. So Herod says, go to Bethlehem and find him. Well, the, the wise men start their way on to Bethlehem when they see the star again, that same star that had appeared to them some two years earlier on the night of Jesus' birth. And they see that star and the scriptures tell us the star leads them to the child who certainly was not in Bethlehem anymore, but rather was at this point in Nazareth as, a, as an infant or, or perhaps a toddler. And they bring three gifts to that child. They lay those gifts before the child and they worship him as king. And the Bible tells us of their meeting in Matthew chapter 2 verse 11. And when they were come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, kingly gifts for the king of kings. And so it was that in the first years of Jesus' life, it was confirmed without question from multiple sources over a number of years that indeed, Emmanuel, God with us, had arrived. That God had been manifest in flesh. But his manifestation was not the end of the story. 
Rather, it was the beginning of what the Bible refers to as the mystery of godliness. And with that in mind, I encourage you to look with me. Your Bibles are there in 1 Timothy chapter 3 at verse 16. And without controversy, the text tells us, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. The mystery of godliness began on that day some 2,000 years ago when Jesus was born in a manger in Bethlehem. What happens next, however, is what establishes his birth uh, as one of the most important days in the history of the world. So important, in fact, that the world has revolved its dating method, its calendar, around the birth of Jesus Christ. They can take his name out of the little letters that they put after the numbers. It used to be A.D. and B.C. Now it's B.C.E. and C.E., right? It used to be B.C. before Christ and A.D. Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. And now it is BCE, before Common Era, and CE, Common Era. They, they've tried to remove Jesus from the history, but the problem is the dates still stand. History still revolves around the birth of our Savior. What happens after Jesus is born on that day in Bethlehem? The New Testament calls it the mystery of godliness. The New Testament uses this word mystery to speak of something established in God's plan from eternity past, but not revealed or made known until a designated point in time and in history. Something that had been established but had not been made known until a later date. The gospel is one of these mysteries for throughout the Old Testament, the Old Testament did indeed foresee many aspects of what Messiah would be. Simeon proclaimed that the Gentiles would receive the light and he knew that not because he had some special revelation of the Lord, but because he knew his Bible. And he knew that Isaiah had prophesied in several places that the Gentiles would come to the light that would come into the world in the form of the Messiah who would come to save his people. But none could anticipate the nature of God's redemptive work in the world. God's plan began on that day so many years ago when God was manifest in flesh, but Jesus Christ wasn't simply born to live. He was born to die. Jesus came into a world that had a huge problem. A transcendent problem, we might say. A sin problem. The Bible calls Jesus the son of righteousness with healing in his wings, calls him the day spring from on high, says that he came to bear our sins in his own body on the tree, to heal us with his own wounds because the human race has a huge problem and that huge problem is sin. The Bible tells us all have sinned. Not one man or woman or child in this room is free from the condition of sin so that the Bible effectively tells tells us, plainly tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned, this verse tells us, but it's the second half of this verse that reveals why this is a problem. 
because by virtue of our sin, we have fallen short of God's glory. Our sin separates us from fellowship with a holy God so that we cannot, in our natural state, have a personal relationship with the Father. Holiness and perfection cannot be in fellowship with sin. This is one thing that an all-powerful, holy God simply cannot do. He cannot have fellowship with sin. Well, no problem, one might say. I'll just stop sinning. But that is a problem. There is a problem. And the problem is twofold. The first problem is that we have already sinned. And James tells us that if we keep the whole law but offend in one point, we are yet guilty of all. It's a problem because we've already dug ourselves into a hole that we simply cannot climb out of. But the second problem is because it's not enough just for us to stop sinning. We aren't sinners because we have sinned. You are not a sinner because you have done sinful things. You do sinful things because you're a sinner. There's something deeper. Our sin is simply a symptom of the root problem. The sins which we commit is a symptom of the deeper illness of sin. And even if we stopped sinning, it wouldn't change the fact that we are sinners. Many of us have been fighting with illness of late. And perhaps in the midst of your illness, you came to a point where you decided you were going to take some medication. Now, as you uh, lay in bed with a fever and chills or whatever the case may be, and you put uh, Tylenol into your body, the Tylenol, if you read the label, says treats the symptoms, and it lists some symptoms, fever and aching and such. The Tylenol is not going to cure the illness. It's going to cover the symptoms. We can stop sinning. We can become good people. We can moralize ourselves to whatever degree we think we can. Of course, it's, it's uh, as Jesus Christ reveals, none of us can stop sinning outside of Christ. But we can try to do all of those things in our own effort, but all we're doing is we're putting a Band-Aid on the symptoms of the problem. The problem is still deep down, and the problem is sin, a sin nature. And that's why Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus left His throne in glory. He came to earth. He was born of a virgin and submitted Himself to His parents. He grew into a man and preached salvation from the slavery of sin. He was falsely accused and sent to a sinner's death on the cross. And on the cross, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 tells us, who His own self bear our sins in His own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. Jesus didn't come to mask the symptoms of the sin problem. He came to heal the illness. He came to undo the power of sin in us. 
As he hung upon the cross, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tells us that God made Jesus to be sin for us. The man who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus bore our sin. He bore the punishment for our illness so that we could be cured and we could be made the righteousness of God in Christ. He came not just to give you the power to stop sinning, but to cure you of the problem of your sin. He paid your sin debt and secured your ability to be reconciled into a personal relationship with God the Father. So it is that 1 Timothy chapter 3.16 tells us that God, who is Jesus Christ, was manifest in flesh. But Jesus' purpose did not end with manifestation. The Bible tells us that Jesus died, but he did not stay dead. Romans 4.25 says that he was delivered for our offenses, but he was raised again for our justification. When he had borne our sins in his own body on the tree, the scriptures tell us that God the Father accepted his sacrifice and raised him from the dead as the stamp of the approval on his ministry, and thus he was justified in spirit, being raised of the dead by God the Father. He was manifest in flesh. He was justified in the spirit. The scriptures tell us he was seen of angels. The reality of his resurrection it is important that Jesus was born. It is important, more important still that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. It is more important still that Jesus rose again in victory over sin and over death and over hell. We learn from the Bible that if, our sin, if, if Jesus had not died, then our sin debt would not be paid. But if Jesus had not risen from the dead, our eternal life would not be secured. The payment of debt without eternal life would be empty and effectually useless. So much so that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5.17, If Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, empty. Ye are yet in your sins. Christ's resurrection, which is the other day that we as Christians memorial, memorialize, excuse me, memorialize in the year, uh, typically around Passover. The world calls it Easter. We refer to it regularly as Resurrection Sunday. Without Christ's resurrection, atonement is not complete. That he was seen of angels is intended to reflect he is risen again. He was seen of men. He was seen of angels. He was witnessed and testified of in Scripture that he is alive today. But here's where things get very personal. God was manifest in flesh. What we remember this Friday. Justified in spirit. Seen of angels. Preached unto the Gentiles. Believed on in the world. Jesus is God. And was manifest in flesh. Justified at his death. Seen after the resurrection. But he was preached on unto the Gentiles. And believed on in the world. Born to die for you. Raised to life for you. Rosie sang it this morning in our preparation. That what he did, he did for us. Jesus was preached unto all men. 
and believed on by all those who will receive him. Today we've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That he was buried. And that he rose again the third day so that he is alive today. We have heard why this matters. Because we are sinners separated from fellowship with God and we have no means by which to change that or undo that on our own. We have no means by which to work ourselves back to God. We have no means by which to pay the sin debt that we have incurred through our unrighteousness. But that's okay. Because Jesus purchased for us the gift of eternal life. And fellowship with the Father. But like any gift, purchasing it isn't enough, is it? Even giving it isn't enough. Gifts must be accepted. This Friday is Christmas, and I assume that some of us in this room have purchased gifts for people. You've thought of them. You've considered them. You have purchased something for them. You, have, you will put their name on that gift. You might wrap that gift. You might brown paper bag that gift. I don't know how that gift is going to be presented. But that gift will be presented in some form or fashion. And as that gift is presented, I saw some smiles. There's some people after my own heart in here with the brown paper bag idea. As that gift is presented, that gift will have been designated for a person. You bought it for them. It's presumably paid for, and it's given to them without any expectation of return. And they are going to open that gift, but they still have to, in a manner of speaking, receive that gift. There have been gifts over the years that my wife and I have been given, but not ever really received. You know, those gifts like the strange salsa platter that you get that ends up becoming a gift for the next person, or something like that, the, 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 the re-gifting culture. Now that gift is given, that gift is paid for, but if that gift is going to sit in its box in our cupboard until such time as we can pass it on, you can't rightly say that we ever truly received that gift. We acknowledged the gift. But the scriptures don't tell us as many as acknowledge Christ, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. The scriptures tell us, but as many as received Christ, to them gave he power to to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. The blood of Jesus Christ covers the sins of the world, But the entire world will not stand with Christ in glory one day. If we revisit John 3.16, we remember the Bible tells us this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It goes on to say, however, in verses 17 and 18. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The Bible places the divine qualification of salvation upon belief on the name of Jesus Christ. 
The Bible clarifies that this doesn't simply mean he existed. We can't simply acknowledge the gift, that Jesus gave a gift, that Jesus purchased a gift. That's the same as my wife and I acknowledging that we received the salsa tray and then leaving it in the box in the cupboard. It never makes an effectual impact on our lives. The gift was not received, though it was acknowledged, though perhaps it was even understood. James tells us that even the devils believe and tremble at the reality of Jesus Christ. To believe on the name of Jesus Christ is to receive the gift, to accept the gift, to place our full faith and trust in Jesus Christ's death and burial and resurrection as our exclusive means of salvation from our sins and for eternal life. It means that we are, as Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 tells us, repenting from dead works and placing our faith in God or putting, turning our faith toward God. A denial of anything and everything that we can do to get ourselves to God, anything and everything that we can do to earn our way to God, anything and everything that we could do to, to be worthy of God, and recognizing, accepting, and receiving the truth that Jesus Christ is the only one that can do for us what we need to get us to heaven to reconcile us to the Father. And the Bible says that when we put our full faith and trust in Christ alone, we become one who is accepting the gift purchased for us by Christ on the day He died. And that gift becomes ours for all of eternity. At the beginning of which, we who believe, just like our Savior Jesus Christ, will be received up into glory. And this is the mystery of godliness. This is God's plan, which was not revealed in full in the Old Testament, not revealed to the prophets of old. In fact, the scriptures tell us that the prophets marveled and wondered and inquired of the Lord. Lord, what am I writing here? I don't, they didn't even understand all of what the Lord was revealing to them. They could not. The mystery had not yet been revealed. The mystery of godliness. The day Jesus lay in a manger in Bethlehem because there was no room in the inn. A humble birth, a lowly birth, no fanfare to welcome him into this world. That was the beginning of something so much more. It was a day of rejoicing, for God was manifest in flesh. It was a day of rejoicing for the one who is called Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, had come to dwell among men. It was a day of rejoicing, for in the darkness of this world, the Son of Righteousness had risen with healing in His wings. That's what we remember this Friday. We remember the day that light pierced the darkness of night. We remember the day that truth pierced the confusion, the fog of error. We remember the day that the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. But make no mistake, that day was only the beginning. The little child in a manger was born for a purpose, and that to fulfill the will of God the Father by going to the cross for our sin. And in fact, 
This is why we rejoice in the birth of Christ. We celebrate Christ's life in which he taught us how to live in a manner that pleases God, but it is not his life which changed the very fabric of history. It was his death and new life through the resurrection that enables us to live out everything that Jesus taught. And indeed, if we have accepted Jesus as our Savior, then we are alive today. If you have accepted Jesus as your Savior, if you have received the gift, then you are alive in Christ. You live the most blessed existence. You are free from the power of sin. You are reconciled into a personal relationship with God the Father. You are free from, you no longer live under the condemnation of the world and the flesh and the devil. You are, in a word, redeemed. A redemption that was put in motion as Jesus lay in that manger 2,000 years ago. This Friday is Christmas. Christmas is designed as a day of, of celebration and of giving of gifts. We give gifts not just as an occasion for kids to get stuff, not just as, as an occasion for us to be kind to one another. It's intended to be a reflection. For the scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ came to this earth and he gave gifts unto men. That Jesus Christ was a gift, but the gift of God is eternal life, the scriptures tell us, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus secured for us the greatest gift. God in flesh came to secure for us eternal life. And if you are a recipient of eternal life this morning, by placing your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If you're not a recipient of eternal life, if you have never come to the place in your life where you have accepted eternal life, where you have accepted salvation from sin by placing your full faith and trust in Jesus, would you do it today? Would you, even there in your seat, receive Christ? Receive the gift by repentance from dead works and placing your full faith in God. But for the majority of, of we who are here this morning, I know you have accepted that gift. And this week is a time of giving of gifts. Children, it's not a time of receiving of gifts. That's not the intent. I mean, you will, but that's not the intent. Christmas is not about receiving gifts. It's about rejoicing and thus giving gifts. It's a time for us to bless one another by and, and thus acknowledge how we have been blessed. And as we do so, let's remember the gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gifts you give, the money you spend placing your na others' names on those gifts, designating them for the ones you love, giving those gifts without any thought toward recompense or reward. For if it has a thought of recompense or reward, it's not a gift, is it? 
It's an exchange. It's a bribe. It's not a gift. But as you give gifts in this season, I encourage you to see it as a celebration of the gift that was given to you. God in flesh. He left his throne and his kingly crown, as we sang this morning, and he came to this earth and he placed himself before men and he went to the cross and he died on that cross and he was buried and he rose again on the third day. And the Bible says that the gift of God is now eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not easy in our culture to understand gift giving properly. Young people, it's not easy being inundated by materialism to understand gift giving properly. Gift giving at this time of year is a memorial, a reflection, a celebration of the greatest gift which you have been given. May our hearts and our minds be turned toward that this week. Maybe as you finish the last minute shopping. Maybe as you finish the last few creases on, those, those, uh, on the wrapping paper, on the gifts that you're going to wrap. Or as you sit on Christmas morning and you can rejoice over the faces and the delights of those whom you have blessed. Let's remember the gift which God gave. The gift of God, which is eternal life. And let's remember how it came through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray.